Good morning, everyone. Our guests this morning are folks from the Alaska Department of Labor. We are talking about the December edition of Alaska Economic Trends. Economist Karina Weebold and Research Section Chief Dan Robinson are here with us. Good morning, you two. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Karina penned an article talking about the maturing of the marijuana industry here in Alaska. Karina, after the first report a few years in of marijuana being legal in Alaska, I believe that was in 2018 or so, the department revisited the industry again. Tell us what spurred the interest. Well, when we looked at it in 2018, everything was so new. The industry was just emerging. We only had a couple of quarters worth of data on permits, on taxes, on the number of people working in the wages. So we thought, you know, things have changed a lot in the last couple of years. What's this looking like as it's maturing? And it's a rare opportunity to take a a moment to look at a new industry, something that we didn't have before and how it's changing. So it was a good opportunity for us to look at what development looks like. Now, let's take a moment to review what brought us here. Folks may already be aware that voters in the state legalized in 2014. The first retail licenses were issued in 2016. But our state's legal history goes further back than just a decade. Share with us a little bit about that history. It really does. Um, Alaska had taken a stance early on, several decades ago, that we were going to consider um, marijuana use as a privacy issue. And so there were certain numbers of protections as long as the use was limited, it was in your home, it wasn't being sold necessarily or shared. So there were some protections for us um, in that way. It also had a little bit of a muddy history because it got us in a little bit of hot water with the feds on occasion when they saw that to be in contrast with their regulations. So it it was a little murky and it went back and forth. Dan here has a legal background and if he wants to chime in at all on what that looked like for us. Just to say it's interesting that the Supreme Court um, in a famous case, Raven versus State, talked about the right to privacy and Alaska's constitution, state constitution, was interesting in in specifically kind of enumerating a, a right to privacy. But you could see in the populace, and Karina has a really nice write-up at the very end of her article, there was a, there was a discomfort with marijuana. So kind of uh, we, were, we, were, we were in, we were out, we were out, we were in. The legislature would do something and the courts would weigh in. So it was, I think muddy is a good, even though it was, it was legal here, there were always questions about um, kind of what the specifics of that meant. And I'd like to mention, too, that legality is an interesting concept when it comes to marijuana because there's legal as in the way that states have been passing it in the last decade, which is legal, um, taxed, regulated, that kind of a thing. And then there's this idea of decriminalized. And I would almost say that Alaska was more of a decriminalized, which was meaning that you weren't going to necessarily be pursued for this youth, but it wasn't, it didn't have a legal framework within the state either. Yeah, I was reading about that and that uh, if you were if you were caught with it, it would be a hundred dollar civil fine, right? So it wasn't, I could see what you're saying about that. Now, put opening one of these businesses into perspective for us, just from the start, what licenses are needed? Well, there's a variety of licenses that are needed, and it depends on what your uh what your business is going to be doing. But licenses are required for every phase of the industry. So um, if you're going to be growing, then there's a small operation permit, and then there's a larger operation permit that depends on how many plants you're growing. 
retail has a different type of permit. So it's not just all bunched up into one, it's not growers and retail? Nope, it's not growers and retails, and also manufacturers are also separate. And manufacturers would be the ones who take the raw product, um, as we kind of think of it as like, they call it flour, and um, turn it into extracts, tinctures, um, even food products, gummies, cookies that drinks there's a whole variety that's come up since um, it's been legalized where the industry has really been very creative about what kinds of products can be derived from marijuana or cannabis as it's also referred to so uh, these all require different types of permits and i'm not so much an expert on what the requirements for the facilities look like but there's also a number of requirements for the facilities where they're located, how far they are away from schools, for example, um, uh, what kind of filtration systems they have, how they can advertise outside of their business. There's just a number of things. And then those are kind of state-mandated requirements. Localities can put their own additional requirements upon it, or they can outlaw it in their communities too, much like some of our communities are dry communities versus wet communities for alcohol. And what what area of the state has the most licenses right now? The most licenses are definitely in South Central. When we looked at it, about three quarters of the licenses are in South Central. Matsu has the most, and those are a little bit heavier on the um, on the growing operations, so the cultivating. Then um, let's see, Anchorage is the second and Kenai is the third. Mm-hmm. Then we have Fairbanks, it's coming in with about a quarter and then the rest of the share is state uh, is shared between the state. And there are permits going all the way up, licenses from um, up in the area formerly known as Barrow that I struggle to pronounce correctly oh. and I apologize everyone, um, all the way down to Ketchikan. So there's a really a wide berth of places that have uh, permits. Uh, Now, share with us how the product is taxed. How how does the state collect on that? The state collects what is called an excise tax, and that is a tax that is imposed when a grower transfers to a retailer or a manufacturer. So when they um, are transferring, that's when the tax is imposed and collected by the state, which also means that for state taxes, retailers aren't taxed, manufacturers aren't taxed, testing facilities aren't taxed. It's really isolated from for state collection to the growers and when they are transferring their product. And it is uh, $50 an ounce, I believe, and uh, that has a little bit of nuance that's been built in in the last year when there were some conversations about higher grade product and lower grade product and taxing those different. Hmm. And, it, and you mentioned also that the local communities here in Alaska also put the tax on as well. Uh, Share with us a little bit about that. It looks like they don't all tax the same way. They don't, and that was a really interesting thing for us to look at. When I first was looking, I assumed that all of the local taxes were a retail sales tax, and this marijuana retail sales tax can take place whether or not the city or municipality has a local sales tax that goes across all products. Some places have sales tax and then a marijuana sales tax, and some places just have the marijuana sales tax. Um, but there are still a number of pla- or several places that have 
a similar tax to the state, which would be an excise tax that they put onto the uh, cultivators at the same time that they are taxed by the state. So it's just be a little bit of that money goes to the locality in addition to the money that would be going to the state. Now, just on the state side, how much revenue has this industry generated? Let's, let's, just, let's just take last year, for example. Let me take a quick look so I make sure that I get my numbers correct. Um, it looks like, gosh, I want to say $22 million. Nope. I'm looking, and I'm this Karina wrote this, so uh, if we can trust her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> $28.9 in marijuana excise taxes, which is the biggest component. Thank you, Dan. And... With it still being a Schedule One drug on the federal level, what are the complications these businesses are running into? Well, that is one of the biggest issues, is that there's a very complicated legal structure when you look at the difference between states that have legalized um, recreational or medicinal marijuana and then the way that the, the feds handle that. And the two major restrictions that that puts on businesses is their ability to tap into um, the banking structure. So they are essentially not able to work with banks and to a lesser extent credit unions. I think there's a little bit of possibility that credit unions could, but they're also fairly risk adverse in getting into kind of a leak uh, murky legal ground. So there's the ability to um, pay their taxes not out of cash. There's um, They can't use credit cards uh, within their facilities. And some banks don't want to finance um, things, even, even accept payments for rents. So it becomes very difficult there. They also have to pay their employers primarily in cash, and that can All be cash, a difficulty. Then. Yes, a very cash-based um Industry And there's a number of difficulties that go in that. And everyone knows it's not a great idea to be carrying around bags of cash. It's, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. And then the second way that it's um, difficult is that federal transportation systems are also restricted for moving marijuana, which means that it really can't be traveled by air or by sea, which is covered by the Coast Guard. So there's been a little bit of uh, kind of a, a gentle workaround with that within this state, and I know others as well. I was in... Portland and Oregon, and they had some considerations for this too, where you can have limited movement of product in state through the local air or for, through airlines. So what happens in those cases is the TSA, which is really not a law enforcement agency, will flag product when it comes through and then call the local uh, law enforcement agencies who then will confirm that it conforms with the general state ideas of how much you can move. And then this, the local law enforcement will allow them to pursue hmm. or p- proceed. But it's still tricky in that the product needs to be sealed and it needs to be with the person who's transporting it at all times. So there's limits on how much they can carry and it has to be on a carry-on. You can't lose custody of your product. Mm. Now, you mentioned a very interesting effect that might occur if federal legalization happens because that would open the door to out-of-state products. Could you share that thinking here for a moment? Yes, absolutely. So right now, because you can't transfer product from state to state for the federal legality reasons, we, each state is somewhat protected as far as what they are able to sell, and it's mostly in-state product. And for Alaska, that's exasperated by the fact that we aren't touching any other states. So there's no easy way to get other products in here. So, so we're it, isolated yes. in that sense. <laughs> 
as we all know, we are isolated in that sense. So what we have here is a very local, homegrown, isolated and protected industry where Alaskans are growing, Alaskans are selling, and the product stays within the state. If that were to open up and say we had the transportation issues, the banking issues, and even possibility of the mailing issues taken out of the equation, then there would be the strongest likelihood that products from developed markets in, say, California that are much bigger than ours would start to move into our market and displace some of the local products. And for the short term, you forecast that the industry has room to grow but might reach its ceiling here in a few years, but overall the outlook is uncertain. Why is that? Well, the biggest reason it's uncertain is that we haven't had an opportunity to look at something similar to this, so we don't know what the growth trajectory looks like. Marijuana is not just a new industry, but it's also one that kind of came in with some baked-in demand because people were using marijuana prior to it being legal. So it's an interesting kind of push and pull as far as like, what, how much do we need? How much demand is there? Are the retail sales uh, establishments in places where the demand is? Are we producing the, the right amount and the right type of product for what people are looking for and when have we reached this saturation where we don't need to continue to promote or or to grow this industry not promote the industry grow the industry so it's going to be a little tricky and then right as we were kind of hitting this point where the industry was several years old and really starting to kind of grow into itself we had the pandemic and the pandemic changed everything there were uh, fewer visitors there were fewer out-of-state workers and then locals also had a real change in their the amount of money that they had available for different things and how they were spending it. So there were a lot of things that were kind of changing at the same time that make it a little murkier as we try and figure out what will this look like when it's done. But what we have seen is that growth in uh, wages of employment, in the number of permits issued every year, and the taxes collected is all starting to slow down. And and that's that's interesting just coming out of the pandemic as the as it was still relatively in its infancy i mean it was only 4 years in when we had started issuing the permits so interesting effect there. Is there anything you'd like to add, Corrine or Dan, on this article? Well, I would like to say that, again, it's going to be really interesting to see what the next couple of years look like as our economy kind of returns to normal, our visitor numbers and our out-of-state workers return to normal. So we'll see like how much of our local demand came from those other sectors. It's, a, it's going to be impossible to test it out, but we will see if we have real changes in the amount produced or sold. So that's going to be pretty interesting. And the other thing that I would say there is that even though this is one of our fastest growing industries and Paul Mertz just recently released 10-year occupational projections looking at um, occupations associated with marijuana, particularly in cultivation, which is something that we consider to be part of agriculture, is one of the highest growing uh, occupations. But at the same time, it's tiny and it's going to remain tiny. So even when we talk about these millions of dollars in uh, taxes being collected, uh, 1,500 employees being paid, all of these different aspects, this industry is not likely to grow 
beyond one or two percent of our overall in any of our big picture categories. So while it is exciting and it's changing, it's really not going to alter our overall economic um, outlook very much. Mm. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and go to a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back with the Department of Labor's Dan Robinson and Karina Weibold. We had Karine take us through the maturing of the marijuana industry in Alaska in the first part here. Now, Dan, it's your turn to talk about the pandemic recovery for restaurants and bars. What's the interest? Yeah, Neil Freed wrote this article, and it's uh, it's it's interesting to us for a few reasons. One of them being that it got hit the hardest by COVID, uh, as we remember. Um, the shutdown came fast and Neil kind of quantifies just how many jobs, and there are a lot of these types of jobs. So that was one element. And then the other element of interest is that it has recovered a little uh, more slowly than many industries, which raises some fun questions, including how much, now I don't know if fun is the right word, but how much the COVID will change permanently. We know there's a labor shortage now, so it's especially hard to find workers for restaurants. So they're having to figure out how to deal with that. And, and it's a real question whether, if things will go back to normal for this uh, part of the economy in particular. I understand you have da- uh, data as recent as June. Share with us what that has revealed. Yeah, I, I love this data that Neil put together. So uh, like you said, the first half of 2022 is the data that he used compared to the first half of 2019. So current and pre-COVID. And, and what it shows is that not all restaurants and bars, not, not everything in this category was the same. So the piece of the, the industry that got hit the hardest was full service restaurants. The places where you go sit down and eat and somebody waits on you, somebody seats you, somebody clears your plate, fills your water, all those things, the labor intensivity and just the fact that COVID restrictions um, interfered with that more. So that piece got hit especially hard. Another piece that got hit hard was, uh, this is interesting to me, bars. Uh, that bar you couldn't go sit in a bar shoulder to shoulder next to somebody during covid um but then on the other side uh, some industry some parts of that industry that have actually more than recovered one is uh, uh coffee shops um and then another one like like limited service uh restaurants the the drive-ins places like that that's disrupted less by covid and there already were kind of delivery mechanisms for getting that food from the the place where it's cooked to homes. So you can almost look at this, this, and Neil breaks it out into eight or nine pieces of the restaurant industry and see, oh yeah, I see what's happening there with COVID. And I see why uh, maybe that has changed more more indefinitely. Food trucks, for example, it's just, it's, it's more COVID friendly. And then once you discover that you love food trucks, uh, whether it's because of cost or whatever else, you, you maybe keep going to a food truck. Now, Dan, we're out of time here, unfortunately, but is there anything you'd like to add? No, just I encourage people to go take a look at this. It's interesting. And then Neil wrote another article on wages and how Alaska compares. So a, a full, rich issue. Yep. That's the December edition of Alaska Economic Trends there. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you for listening in. I'll go take you to the problem corner here in a moment, but I'm signing off.